Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. A reading this morning will come from Numbers 11, the whole chapter. So hang in there. (laughs) And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom? as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I, who I am number 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and it be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, 
one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And all the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all over the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatabah, because there they buried the people who had been had the craving. From Kibroth Hatabah, the people journeyed to Hazareth, and they remained at Hazareth. The word of the Lord. Open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you today, now and always. Amen. You may be seated. Have I used up all my time? <laughs> um, our passage this morning begins with a gripe. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. We are not told specifically what the people were complaining about, but at this point in the story, the issue is not what they were griping about, but that they were just simply griping again. And God was tired of it. <clears throat> so he sends his fire down into their camp. Now, it doesn't say that anyone was killed, just that the outskirts of the camp were burned up and it scared them. And this is what us Southerners call a warning shot. And with ammo... The cost of ammo, we don't even do that anymore. Um, if this seems a little harsh to you, let me quickly recount the events leading up to this moment. About 13 months earlier, Israel had been enslaved by Egypt. In fact, they had been slaves for almost 150 years. Even for the oldest among them, all they knew in their life was slavery. But then God rescued them. He sent his deliverer Moses to lead them out of captivity. They watched as the miraculous hand of God sent plague after plague to prove the might of Yahweh over Pharaoh. And then they saw the miraculous hand of God again as the Egyptians gave them all of their riches as they left. And then as they stood at the Red Sea, watching Pharaoh's army march after them, they waited with anticipation for God to perform another glorious miracle. Well, not quite. Rather, they complained. They said, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you needed to bring us out into the wilderness to die? Thanks for nothing. Of course, God parted the waters that day, and the people crossed the sea on dry land to safety. Exodus 12, 37 tells us that there were over 600,000 men, so not including women, children, or the Levites, so the number of people who were saved that day were easily over 2 million. So that means 
that over two million Israelites watched as God made the sea divide. Then all two million of them crossed on the dry land to the other side. And then they turned around and watched as God caused the waters to come back together and destroy their enemy. It must have been an amazing experience, right? So amazing that three days later, Exodus 15 tells us that they grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? On and on it goes. They complain about being thirsty. God miraculously provides water. They complain about food. God miraculously provides manna. Then they complain about the manna. And now at the beginning of Numbers 11, they are complaining about their misfortunes again. So God sends his fire. Now this isn't just ordinary fire. This is the fire of the Lord, it says. The same fire that is upon the altar in the tabernacle. The same fire that had consumed Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, just a few weeks earlier when they disobeyed God and offered sacrifices on their own fire. So this should tell us something about the seriousness of Israel's grumbling. It should also remind us and tell us something about our, the seriousness of our own grumbling too. So, so yet, we read that, and yet the people cried out about the fire, and God caused it to cease, and then we read right away that the people wept and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We're sick of this manna. Can you imagine being this hard-headed? Yeah, me neither, right? Um, well, there are two things I want to highlight about this specific complaint against the food God had provided for them. First, notice who complains. Verse 4 specifically tells us that the rabble that was among them had strong cravings. This word that is translated as rabble refers to the mixed multitude of Israel. If you go back to Exodus 12 again, right after it tells us that there were 600,000 men that came out, it tells us in verse 38 that a mixed multitude also went up with them. These are the people who were not ethnic Jews, but had left Egypt with the Israelites. You know, perhaps they were children of, of Jews who had married Egyptians at some point and they were mixed blood, or perhaps they were just simply Egyptians or other Gentiles who had witnessed the mighty deeds of God and then had chosen to follow him out of Egypt. Leaving Egypt with the Israelites is a blessing for the mixed multitude. Non-Israelites are rescued along with the Israelites. And this, of course, has been the plan all along. This was the promise to Abraham, that Israel would bless the nations. And here we see Gentiles being blessed, simply based on their connection with the people of God. They had two options, side with Pharaoh or side with Yahweh, and they had obeyed Yahweh. They chose rightly. Many of these people covenanted themselves to Yahweh. They became Israelites which simply means that they adopted the practices and worship of Israel. This happens all the time in Scripture. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, whom King David betrayed and murdered, is an example of this. He was a Hittite who became one of David's mighty men, a valiant warrior in the army of Israel. And if you remember, David had gotten Bathsheba pregnant and tried to cover it up by calling Uriah back from the battlefield and convincing him to sleep with his wife. Well, the reason David's deception did not work is because Uriah was faithful to his Israelite vows. He was a true Israelite. Now, this group in Numbers 11, 
they are, they are apparently a group of Egyptians or Gentiles who did not convert. They are the rabble. And we're told that this rabble had strong cravings. Now, this simply means lustful desires. One fun translation says that they fell a lusting. Perhaps it was a lust for meat, but it's not specific, and this is probably intentional. There is a connection here between ungratefulness and lust, between griping and giving in to our baser desires. The implication seems to be that the rabble are the ones who introduced the cravings and then the Israelites adopt it as their own. You know, the world begins complaining and God's people follow suit. The world pursues their lusts and desires and God's people mimic them. They wanted to be like the world. We still want to be like the world today many times. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. So the temptation to do this will always be with us. And it's not always easy to discern either. We have to be careful. You know, even in our own Christian circles, the term rabble still applies. Our churches are full of people who will pursue their own lusts and desires and they encourage you to do the same. So be vigilant. Pursue righteousness. Now, the second thing I want to highlight is how they complain. We saw who is complaining, but pay, pay attention to how they are doing it. They whine and weep because they do not have meat to eat. And they say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Consider the word remember. We remember all of the stuff back in Egypt. They remember the things before God miraculously rescued them. But they forget all of the wonderful things God has provided for them since. This word for remember is the same one used in the language of God's covenant promises. Just a few months earlier, when they were back at Sinai, God had renewed covenant with his people and he vowed that he would remember his promises. These people, in fact, had just celebrated the first Passover, which is a feast specifically designed to remember God's deliverance. And yet they throw it back in his face. What they remember is the Egyptian food. Of course, remembering and food is a vital part of the Christian's life. Every Sunday we gather at the table of God, we eat bread, we drink wine, the, the body and blood of Christ, and we remember what he has done and what he continues to do for us. God uses good food to cultivate thankfulness in our lives. And this is one of the reasons why we don't want to pass around stale, tasteless wafers for communion. God gives us bread, and we ought to taste it, to chew it, to savor it, and to be thankful for it. Now, the specifics of the Egyptian food are pretty interesting. First, it says that the meat that they desired is fish. I mentioned this in a previous sermon about Jonah, but throughout Scripture, fish is symbolic of the Gentile nations. Jonah is taken by a fish to the Gentile nation of Nineveh, and they are converted. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet sees a vision of living water flowing out of the temple into the sea, and he sees every kind of fish being caught which symbolizes the success that the gospel will have on the nations. Of course, in the New Testament, the disciples are mostly fishermen. And when Jesus calls them to follow him, 
he says that they will be fishers of men. Well, here in Numbers, the desire to be back in, back in Egypt is linked with the fish of that Gentile nation. God gives them bread from heaven, but they desire fish. Many commentators interpret this passage to mean that the food was really good in Egypt. And they sort of sympathize with the Israelites and they say, well, of course they missed the food. They had fresh fish and, and who doesn't like cucumbers and garlic? However, the ancient historian Herodotus, in book two of his, of his book, The Histories, he goes into great detail about the Egyptians, their culture, their medicine, their wildlife. It's an entertaining read. It's, his history is a mishmash of fact and conjecture and outlandish tales and some rumors he's heard. And it's pretty much the way history is done today, right? But uh, at, at one point, Herodotus describes the rich, delectable seafood that the wealthy Egyptians eat. And then he compares that with what the poor eat. In particular, he references a fish that hangs out in the shallows and is easy to catch. And basically what happens is the Nile rises, these fish come inland, lay their eggs, and then the water recedes and these little fish hatch in pools of mud that are left. In other words, the fish that the Israelites are longing for are probably these little mud puddle fish not the rich, sun-dried, deep-sea, salted fish of the rich. Remember, the Israelites were slaves. They ate what the poor people ate, probably even worse than the poor people. Herodotus also describes the meals that the slaves ate when they built the Egyptian pyramids. This is, they ate radishes, onions, garlics, which is the food the Israelites wish they could go back to. The Israelites would rather have the slave food of Egypt than the manna God has provided for them. And it's not like God is not providing good food for them. You know, as if to emphasize this, the very next verse describes the manna that God has given to them. It was like coriander seed and it looked like bedellium. It tasted like cakes baked with oil. Exodus 16 describes manna as bread from heaven. And, it, and its taste was like wafers made with honey. Not too shabby, if you ask me. You know, it sounds like something we get at Great Harvest, right? Um, it certainly sounds better than mud fish and onions. But the point is that the Israelites were not willing to put their trust in God and, took, and looked to Him for their provision. They trusted in the Egyptians and desired the things of the world, even if it meant being in chains. And I don't think it requires much of a stretch to see this situation in our own modern circumstances. You know, the obvious example here is 2020, when most of the churches shut down. They obeyed the science, they obeyed the state, they obeyed the media, they obeyed everything but God's word. They preferred, they preferred chains. Those that continued to gather did so trusting in the Lord's provision. You know, if we're honest, we didn't really know what would happen it was possible that we would get sick, and many of us did get sick. But it wasn't about weighing all the options and going with the safest bet. It was about obedience, pure and simple. And God has blessed the obedient as he always does. In fact, that is the theme of the rest of Numbers 11, though on the surface it doesn't necessarily seem that way. You know, it's, it's actually a little odd that in the middle of the story about manna and then quail, there's another story 
about God appointing elders to help Moses. At first glance, they don't seem to jive at all. Some commentators have gone so far as to say that this proves that parts of the story have been added at later dates. However, if we look at some of the similarities between these two events, we will see that it does indeed fit because it emphasizes the contrast between grumbling and thanksgiving. First, notice that there appears to be two complaints happening here. The Israelites complaining about their food, and then it seems like Moses is complaining about being overwhelmed. And it may be tempting to categorize both of these events as sinful. The people are whining to Moses, and now Moses is whining to God. But the text is actually setting up a contrast here. The complaints of the Israelites are sinful. And we see this in the fact that God's anger is kindled and that there are consequences for their grumbling. But the opposite is true of Moses. His complaint is not like the Israelites. Moses is not pining away for Egypt in the good old days. Moses is of the same mind of God. He's angry with their sin. And Moses is bold with his request. He confidently approaches God with his frustrations which is what we are able to do as Christians in the New Covenant. You know, Moses is completely on board with the mission of God, but the people have a stiff neck and they are ungrateful. How is he to accomplish God's mission with people like this? So God answers Moses. His solution is to have Moses gather 70 elders to, and, and then he will take some of the spirit that is upon Moses and then distribute it among the elders. So the 70 elders gather as they're told. God comes down in the cloud, distributes the Spirit among them, and then the Spirit goes back to the camp and rests on two more elders who had stayed behind. They're probably doing a podcast or something. I don't know what they were doing. But, uh, but, but then after that, God answers the grumblers. They have complained about wanting meat despite God's provision of manna. Well, He's going to give them meat. He's going to give them so much meat that it will come out of their noses. In other words, because their desire is not for God, but for their own lusts to be satisfied, he will give them what they want until it kills them. And the contrast here is one of abundance, right? God's response to the righteous request is, oh, you need help? I will give you more help than you ever expected. And then his response to the sinful complaint is, oh, you want meat, huh? I will give you more meat than you can handle. Again, I don't think it requires too much of a stretch to make an application to our own lives today. We are a nation of complainers. The blatant wickedness we see in our culture, adultery, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, at root, these are manifestations of unthankfulness. It begins with people not being thankful for their spouses, not being thankful for the way they were made, not being thankful for the children that they've been given, not being thankful for the life that they've been given. Our culture despises the gifts of God, and like the quail given to the grumblers, he has rewarded their ungratefulness with abundance. He has given them exactly what they wanted, and more of it, and more of it until it kills them. They embrace loneliness, self-loathing, disease. 
They mutilate their own bodies and the bodies of their children. They expose their children to sexual abuse. They murder their children. These are lifestyles that bear no fruit at all, yet they indulge themselves to death because God is giving them what they want. We must be on high alert lest this happens to us. Our natural tendency is to complain despite all of the blessings that God gives to us. And we often don't even realize that we're doing it. When I was in seminary, Denise and I had our first child, and my parents moved up to Kentucky to be near us. And so we ended up living in the basement of their house, and every night we would eat dinner with them. And almost every night my dad would come to the dinner table, and he would say, Oh me, did you see what the politicians did today? Or, or oh me, my back is aching today. Or, oh me, can you believe what I had to deal with today at such and such? Well, my dad wanted to be Grandpa. Like, that's what, it, that's what he wanted his name to be. But what do you think my, my dad's name was? He was, oh me. <laughs> that's what the kids called him. And, and it's funny because my dad is amazing. Like, he is loving. He loves his family to death. He will do anything for them. He is the hardest worker I've ever met. He can fix anything, but his identity was the complaint. It was, oh, me. And he realized that. I mean, he, the story has a happy, a happy ending. He is grandpa now because he realized that. He realized I need to stop complaining, even about little things like that. But, you know, it's, it's a silly story, but it does get the point across that complaining has consequences, even if we don't realize it at first. And of course, those consequences often are much, much worse than oh me. You know. So how do we stop ourselves from complaining and griping? How do we make sure we are acting like Moses and not like the Israelites? Well, listen to what Paul has to say in his letters to the Thessalonians. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If Israel had been doing this, they would not have been able to grumble. And this is usually the case with sin, right? It's not just active disobedience, but it's also the neglect of active obedience. In other words, it's really hard to give thanks and complain at the same time. If you are thanking God for the gift of a functioning vehicle, and then you're thanking him for the extra time that you get to listen to the God of Minute podcast, well, you're, it's, going to be a, it's going to be hard to complain about the traffic. And guys, if you are honoring the ladies as your sisters and you're praying for their protection, it is a lot more difficult to give in to your lusts. And ladies, if you are encouraging others with your words and praying for them, then it's a lot harder to slander and gossip against them. Giving thanks is not something we do when we feel like it. It's a necessary part of the Christian life. We do not wait to feel thankful before we express our thanks. Rather, we express our thanks so that it cultivates a thankful heart. And we are to do it, yes, in all circumstances. When things are not going our way, when we are suffering, when we're going through difficult times, when our siblings are getting on our nerves, when our spouses are not loving and respecting us as they should, it doesn't matter. We are called to give thanks in all circumstances. 
It's easier said than done, right? Well, if the Bible doesn't say it's going to be easy. In fact, it's not even something you can do on your own. You can't muster up the desire to be thankful. It is a work of the Holy Spirit, which is why praying for gratitude is so important. George Herbert, the great 17th century poet, begins his poem, Gratefulness, with this line. Thou that hast given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Gratefulness is a gift, a gift that God offers to us every week when we come before him. A gift that God grants when we fervently pray for it. It's a gift that grows stronger in our lives when we are obedient to the giver. We need to be like Moses and approach God with confidence, knowing that he loves us, he hears us, he welcomes us when we draw near to him in faith. This is what we do every week when we gather together before the throne of God. We are expressing thankfulness. The psalmist tells us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness is to all generations. Worship is thanksgiving, and drawing near to God is the first step toward cultivating a thankful heart. Earnestly ask the Lord to make you grateful for all of his gifts, and then practice at home what you have practiced here this morning. And remember to give thanks in all circumstances. Let us pray. O oh Lord, you have blessed us beyond measure. Help us to be thankful for your gifts and may our hearts overflow with gratitude so that the world may see that you are a good father who loves his children. And most of all, we thank you for the most precious gift of your son, who is the reason why we can stand so boldly before you and ask for your blessings upon us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.